And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. A news story today in the Christian Post. Uh, It looks as though 58 congregations in Louisiana have officially disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is the second largest mainline Protestant denomination in the United States, and they've been experiencing schism after schism over the debate regarding homosexuality. Um, The United Methodist Church Louisiana Conference held a special session on Saturday and approved the votes of 58 congregations who decided by at least two-thirds vote to leave the denomination. You know, this nobody takes great joy in watching Christian churches fragment and split. Uh, That certainly is not what Christ intended. And yet, you have to hold truth and unity uh, and maintain the tension between them. And I have to say, uh, with all the problems that Catholic Church has, uh, the one thing that it does do well uh, is maintain formal unity. Uh, And yesterday, in the second hour, we heard an example of that. Let me uh, go into this a little bit. So we had Dr. Mark Knoll with me yesterday. He's a great historian uh, of American culture, American religion in particular, especially Protestantism and how it shaped American culture. But the founders of the United States wanted a republic of virtuous citizens, but they did not want a national church. To have virtuous citizens, though, you have to have a way of forming virtuous citizens. And for centuries, the nations of Europe uh, had state churches. And the expectation was that the churches would be the virtue-forming component. They would guarantee good, virtuous citizens. But the founders of the United States said, no, not the way we're doing it. Now, the colonies did have state churches, but the founders generally didn't expect any national church. And before too long, the state churches were already uh, losing their influence, and they eventually were seen as incompatible with America's emphasis on freedom of conscience. But the founders did know they had a problem. What was going to substitute for the state church in the formation of virtuous citizens? And what ended up happening was, a, by common consent, it was the idea was that the centrality of the Bible in the religious lives of Americans would be the virtue-forming mechanism, you might say. So remember, uh, America was dominated by various forms of Protestantism. You you see occasional Catholics like John Carroll, who played an important role in the founding of the country. But uh, America really was a de facto Protestant nation. And the evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, In 1789, the year the Constitution was signed, there were 4,700 churches in uh, America. Only 60 of them were Catholic. (laughs) And there were a handful of synagogues. So roughly 98% of the churches in the the year of the Constitution were Protestant. The centrality of the Bible in early America was the replacement for the state church idea. And this was simply understood as the means by which Americans could guarantee a virtuous citizenry. Of course, there were always problems with this approach. Uh, A little bit of thought would reveal that America was filled with Protestants 
but they disagreed with many <laughs> with each other about many things. Uh, baptism. Uh, did baptism regenerate? Should it be administered to infants? Or the Lord's Supper? How frequently? Uh, what's the nature of the sacrament or the ordinance? What about salvation? Could one lose one's salvation? Predestination, all these things uh, showed serious doctrinal disagreements among the various Protestant denominations that dominated uh, early America. But the differences were theological, and they didn't take clear political form any longer by the time of the founders. Now, back in Puritan Massachusetts, Congregationalist Connecticut, those questions did take political form. But by the time of the founding, those were considered doctrinal disputes, and they didn't necessarily affect people, uh, their political lives at all. But the issue of slavery, that was what undermined the confidence in a republic formed around the centrality of the Bible. It wasn't salvation. It wasn't the Lord's Supper. It wasn't baptism. Those doctrinal disagreements uh, were important, but they did not undermine confidence in the centrality of the Bible as the virtue-forming mechanism for America. Slavery produced not just a disagreement over doctrine. It spoke to one's way of life, one's economy, one's family possessions. I asked Dr. Knoll when the argument over slavery began. Well, it begins uh, just as soon as there is a, a Bible-based complaint against enslavement, which actually comes quite late, remarkably late. We, we think, looking back today, just isn't it self-evident that this slavery has moral problems? Right, right. When, when uh, English uh, anti-slavery sentiment arose, the late 1760s and early 1770s, immediately there were publications, uh, often by people with experience in the, in the West Indies, which, which had a large, larger slave population than the American colonies, who said, no, 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 there's, of course, problems in how uh, slavery is operated, but, but look at the Israelites, and, and the, 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 the quotation from Leviticus chapter 25, a text that just doesn't get too much attention, <laughs> usually, just, just keep coming, because in Leviticus 25, Moses says to the Israelites, you may capture people from the tribes around you and enslave them for life and pass them on to your descendants. Mm. Well, yeah. Moses said it also in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. You, Abraham had slaves. And then uh, as time went on, the arguments moved more to the New Testament. Jesus uh, uh, abridged and changed and developed many, many things from the Hebrew Scriptures from the Old Testament, but he did not say a single word condemning Roman slavery. And the Apostle Paul, many times in his letters, says to servants, and everybody knew that that was the word for slaves, obey your masters in, in the Lord. Yeah. So that, that argument developed at the same time. There were many people who said, look, you can't, you can't believe the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and, and, and treat, your, treat people as objects and, and, and enslave them. Uh, there were uh, eager Bible students on the abolitionist side who pointed out that Moses condemned man-stealers to death. How can you have a slave system if people have not been stolen? And <laughs> so the, the battle went back and forth. And Catholic apologists and journalists pointed out that this was a problem, unavoidable, 
in the Protestant world, since there's no divinely authorized interpretation of the Bible, you know, to settle differences. Uh, and in fact, Protestants, uh, Catholics said, were to blame for the Civil War. Mark points this out, too. The editors of Catholic newspapers say many times in many ways, you know why we're fighting the Civil War? It's because these Protestants that are so <laughs> dominant in both parts of the United States are at each other's throats, and these Protestants are all appealing to the Bible, and they're all creating the moral and now military confusion that's led to the Civil War. Hmm. That argument is actually there a little bit earlier. Uh, uh, bishop John, oh, John Carroll, before he was the first uh, Catholic bishop, had written a, a defense of Catholicism in the uh, mid-1780s. It was actually a part of a, a controversy that was very genteel by later standards. But but he, he tried to point out that, that uh, what Catholics have is an authoritative interpretation from Scripture which avoids the problem that Protestants have right. of different groups saying, well, no, this is the truth. And actually, in the 1780s, there's not nearly as wide a variety of Protestant interpretations of the Bible as it would become over the next 50 and 60 years. And so I asked him, did Catholics actually benefit from magisterial teaching? Were they able to maintain a common witness against slavery? Or were Catholics, in spite of the Church's clear voice, were they themselves divided, you know, at the street level, by regional loyalties, Northerners following the Northern approach, Southerners following the Southern approach? That's an interesting question, uh, uh, because uh, it's been really, really good uh, writing, maybe just in the last 20 years, John Noonan, uh, John McGreevy at uh, Notre Dame, uh, Judge John Noonan, have all talked about Catholics and enslavement and, and attitudes toward enslavement. And again, the, the picture is a little bit complicated. Um, uh, Pope Gregory, the I'm not going to get his number right, but in the uh, 1830s, issued a very strong uh, encyclical condemning the slave trade. And there were uh, American readers who said, this, this is so close to condemning slavery itself that we, we can celebrate this. There were actually liberal Protestants who read this papal document in public and said, for once, these people that we just don't like have said the right thing. <laughs> on, the, on the ground in America, however, there just is no Catholic... Uh, serious Catholic anti-slavery agitation until way, till way later. I mean, so it was clear that the dispute over slavery not only led to the discrediting of the possibility of a republic built around the centrality of the Bible; it actually led to the shedding of blood. I mean, disputes over biblical interpretation led to enslaving some human beings and killing others. It led to the fracturing of Presbyterianism formally. Methodism, various Baptist groups, as well as Episcopalian and Lutheran bodies, all formally divided over slavery. The Catholic Church, however, did not formally fracture over the issue of slavery. And it's worth pointing out that uh, Pope Gregory XVI, in December of 1839, in an apostolic letter, condemned the slave trade in the strongest possible terms. That's what Mark was referring to, and this was uh, picked up by the abolitionists and used, uh, you know, to uh, further their cause, even though they, many, many, many of the abolitionists were deeply anti-Catholic, but they were willing to quote the Pope in their cause to abolish slavery. 
But uh, and we should be we should be glad that the church did not divide over the issue of slavery like so many of the Protestant denominations did. But we should get a little I get a little frustrated when I hear people saying that if only the bishops would do more to tell Catholics how to think about abortion, for instance, that all would be well. Just remember, throughout Catholic history, there's no reason to believe that what the church teaches necessarily translate translates into changed behavior on the part of men or nations. That doesn't mean the bishops or the Pope should stop teaching. They need to teach. It only means that teaching is insufficient to produce changed opinions on the part of the laity. Educated laity, catechized laity, also need to be prompting other laity to do the right thing. 